Hello everyone and welcome once again to the Ultimate Motorcycling Podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is brought to you by the Yamaha YZF-R7, Yamaha's awesome super sport machine that is as capable on the racetrack as it is on the street, and it's comfortable too. Check it out at your local Yamaha dealer, or of course at yamahamotorsports.com. In this week's first segment, senior editor Nick DeSena rides the BMW K1600 GT. This is the sporty bagger version of BMW's K-series of machines. Those are the models with the awesome six-cylinder engine. The GT has been given a bit of a makeover, and Nick gives us his take. In the second segment, I chat with one of my all-time heroes, three-time world champion racer Fast Freddy Spencer. I'll do my best not to come off as too much of a fanboy here, but frankly, it'll be tough. In my humble opinion, Spencer is a contender for the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Sure, his career was a little shorter than some, and his number of championships falls behind the likes of Lawson, Doohan, Rossi, and of course Marquez. But at the time, Freddie literally changed the way motorcycles were ridden. 30 years before Marc Marquez, Freddie was able to push the front wheel into a slide, corner after corner, lap after lap, in order to get the bike turned faster than anyone else. Freddie took completely different lines. He was able to get on the throttle so early, he could out-accelerate anyone off a corner. In the modern era, of course, Freddie is the chairman of the FIM MotoGP stewards panel. This is the panel of referees for all classes of Grand Prix racing. I talked to Freddie about his task there, and although for contractual reasons with Dorna and the FIM, he cannot talk about specific riders, teams, or events, nevertheless, his explanation of the job makes for interesting listening. (laughs) It's a tough job. Frankly, I wouldn't want to do it. At any rate, Freddie's new book, Feel, is available on Amazon. I'd highly recommend you read it. Actually, Ultimate Motorcycling is giving away five copies of the book, signed by Freddie himself, to the first five listeners of this podcast who contact us with the correct answer to the question, how many national AMA championships did Freddie win and which years were they? Please email your answers to producer at ultimatemotorcycling.com and we will contact the winners and send you a signed copy of Feel. Those five winners will be announced on a future episode. Unfortunately, for legal reasons, this offer is only open to US residents. That is, residents of America. Sorry about that. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World. And the Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. 
With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. I like the GT. In fact, actually, in some ways, I prefer it to the GTL. I find it more comfortable and just easier to ride. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. It's the, the more sporty of the bunch, we'll say. It is a bit of an interesting update because for 2022, they they did a, a handful of changes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't label this as a major update, but there are... A, a few notable changes throughout the line and they they get distributed throughout the entire k1600 family uh, that includes the gt which i would argue is the sportiest of the bunch the gtl which essentially has uh, additional luggage and slightly altered riding position that chills it out a bit you have the b which stands for bagger um so a little bit lower ride height kind of a bavarian bagger take on you know an, an american v-twin um bagger equivalent and then you have the full regalia touring machine the grand america which has everything under the sun available uh, on it so we're focusing on the gt as we said before the sportiest of the bunch lightest of the bunch and i guess in my opinion I would say it's my personal preferred weapon of the K1600 family. Um, but yeah, we're going to get into some of these changes. And, uh, you know, as a reminder, not a full rebuild. We'll say this is a spit shine, a refresh sort of deal. But uh, the core components are still as we know them to be. Okay, sounds great. Uh, where do you want to start? Are there any changes to the engine? Uh, there are. So, you know, looking at it from just a pure, purely performance and numbers perspective, we did gain a little bit of horsepower and a little bit of torque, you know, a couple of points here and there, maybe give or take um, in terms of uh, horsepower and, and torque, which brings us up to 160 horsepower at 6,750 RPM, which importantly is a thousand RPM lower than before. So we're getting that peak power a little bit earlier, makes it more accessible and uh, just, you know, you can get into things with a little bit more um, uh, urgency, we'll say. Now, torque has also been updated and uh, it went up from 129 to 133, claim numbers, of course, that comes in at the same 5,250 RPM. Really, a lot of the updates to the engine are focused on uh, meeting Euro 5 standards and updating the uh, engine control unit, basically. So for our money, that's not something that we particularly feel. If you're familiar with the six-cylinder uh, inline, inline engine that's in the K1600 motorcycles, this is going to be quite familiar to you, if not relatively the same. But... Uh, no, that that engine overall is is a is a pretty interesting interesting motor when you look at it, you know, kind of stacked up against the rest of 
the uh, you know comparable touring bikes across across the motorcycling um, landscape. Okay, I, I mean that to me sounds like quite a lot. Uh, it, you know, I mean, you know, making all that power a thousand RPM lower—that's that's quite a big shift. I, I got to say, I mean, I haven't ridden the the GT or the GTL for a couple of years, but when I did, torque was not a problem with them. I mean, these are torquey motors anyway. I mean, actually, the motors are great on these things. So, yeah. so I, I don't know. I mean, if they've managed to to boost those numbers and bring in a thousand RPM lower, that's really impressive. Yeah, you know, bringing in that power a little bit lower is noticeable. I would say. Um, but at the same time, as you mentioned before, torque was never an issue. And that's sort of the thing with this inline inline six engine. I'm so used and almost programmed to say inline four, but uh, it's an inline six. So it has a character that is fairly unique among uh, touring motorcycles. Uh, there's only a handful of motorcycles uh, in the landscape that use this engine configuration. So it is pretty rare. But the way it delivers power is just so insanely smooth. And I think that's something that anyone that gets on one of these motorcycles for the first time is going to be, they're probably going to be taken aback by it. I mean, you, you start the engine and it has a pretty, we'll say, subdued sort of just low kind of rumbly, you know, I would say highly refined growl to it. You know, pretty, pretty chill. And then as you get into it and it, it just sort of pulls along and it has this sort of, uh, I mean, kind of unnatural ability to just be pushed along by like a divine hand. It, it, it almost doesn't accelerate at the, uh, the way you might think it might match the RPM. Because if you push along, it may maybe, you know, 2,500 RPM up to about 4,500 4, RPM, maybe even five grand. The engine isn't really working too hard at all, and it's just shoving along more, you know, you know, with some some good power behind it, and just kind of scoots along with this this just sort of subtle push to everything, and it's not slow by any stretch of the imagination. It just propels you forward, and so that's what I mean by that sort of you're sort of just skirted along the canyons and highways by this divine hand it's it's a really interesting experience and then as you really start cracking on the gas and getting into that upper rev range i want to say that the engine character changes it you just get more of it and the exhaust note changes a little bit it kind of becomes a lot more high pitched and it actually does get a little bit more aggressive i'll say um and that's 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 pretty cool actually so in a touring bike you know it's it, it is calm and subdued when it needs to be which is really beneficial at lower speeds um and even when you start hustling around the canyons you don't really have to wring its neck to get into the power it's always right there for you so you can easily just plop this thing in six gear and run around any any canyon and just roll on the throttle off and on off and on do whatever you want and it's pretty much all gravy and that's really cool it makes it really easy to ride for pretty much anyone and if you do want to you know bang up and down the gearbox and and start you know adventuring into the higher revs you can do that too that's kind of the gist of the engine and, and there are some electronic updates that come uh with the 2022 model uh they updated lambda sensors fueling things like that there's also um 
different torque maps, essentially writing maps, um, and a, an electronic supplement to the mechanical slipper clunch uh, known as a engine drag torque control or MSR. We've heard that from other manufacturers. KTM actually uses the same acronym. Um, so yeah, the, that's kind of the, the engine in a nutshell, but it is a really unique experience, um, you know, compared to other bikes, you know, singles, twins, et cetera, et cetera, and other touring bikes, especially when we think about American touring. Um, so it is a really cool engine. Yeah, and uh, the, the fueling has, um, I found certainly with the GTL in the very low gears or certainly in first gear can be a little abrupt in sport mode is have they done anything with the fueling at all so it's been a number of years since i've ridden the previous generations um and thinking back to the last time i rode a k1600 model it would have been the b and that was probably four years ago now um thinking back to that point in time a lot of motorcycles with ride by wire throttles did struggle with that uh you know because that i want to i don't want to say that was a new thing to bikes, but it wasn't as established as it is now. Um, but getting to the point at hand with the 2022 model, we're working with rain, road, and dynamic riding modes. Um, and those are going to affect a variety of different systems throughout the bike. Uh, you know, uh, ABS intervention, traction control, um, and they're also tied to your dynamic ESA or semi-actives uh, electronic suspension now the riding modes themselves rain is a rain mode it cuts power really calms things down for those particular situations since we live in california where it does not rain and we will soon be living in a mad max scenario <laughs> you know that really riding it in these types of environments it just curbs the power as you can imagine Road and dynamic do have a, we'll say, um, perceptible difference. Road definitely sort of curbs power on the, uh, I, I would say anywhere between that, that first maybe five to 15% of throttle opening. Um, so it's just not as aggressive right out of the gate. And then it does work into the same power delivery as dynamic, whereas dynamic is a bit snappier, uh, you know, just on that initial crack of throttle. In my opinion, I would say that these two modes are pretty relative. And when we're talking about touring motorcycles overall, um, you know, the differences aren't as great as you might experience on more sport oriented motorcycles where they're really trying to stratify the different modes. In this case, I would say that these two modes are, are closer together. Getting to your original question about, are they smooth? Do they have bad feeling? No, 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 not at all. That's not an issue, whether you're, you're just rolling off the line or mid corner or anything else. Very smooth feeling throughout the RPM band. And, you know, whether you're in road or dynamic, I think you'll be in good shape. For my preference, I, I enjoy dynamic the most, uh, just a little bit snappier, but I wouldn't really say it's a, a a sporty mode, you know, when compared to other BMW motorcycles that actually do have a sport inclination, say things like the BMW S1000R or RR, and, you know, motorcycles in that, that realm. Excellent. I always found the gearbox to be 
you know, beautiful and re really good. It, it uh, comes with the GearShift Assistant, is that correct? Yes. It, uh, well, GearShift Assist Pro, otherwise known as a quick shifter to the rest of the world, okay. uh, sure. <laughs> is part of the premium package. Um, so the model that we tested, and we should just bring this up now, base, you know, the MSRP for a bone stock uh, 2022 BMW K1600 GT is $23,895. Sorry, $23, there is a $795 destination charge. We also have the option 719 mineral white metallic paint scheme, which comes with a pretty brilliant white. I mean, the most pearl white you can find. And there is some metallic in there. So it kind of glistens in the sun. It's pretty cool. Um, it also includes uh, hand-painted pinstriping on the fairings, uh, tank side panels and cases. So that's a nice little touch. And you also get gold calipers. So that is a $1,900 uh, add-on for that paint, paint scheme. And there's a million different paint schemes for this motorcycles. Not even gonna get into the other ones because honestly, you're just gonna get lost. <laughs> now the packages that we have on this, on this bike, uh, we're running the premium package. That's an additional $3,000. It comes with the upgraded um, radio software, keyless ignition, uh, BMW's war on keys still continues to this day. Uh, <laughs> so, and then also the uh, quick shifter, as we mentioned before, central locking system, auxiliary LED lights, uh, alarm system, and engine protection bars. So crash bars, essentially. Uh, the additional options that we have individually that you can buy separately from packages. Um, we have a brown quilted saddle with the embroidered uh, GT logo, 250 bucks. And we also have the floor lighting, 400 bucks. That brings us to a grand total of 29,940. So $30,000 for this bad boy right here. Now, the reason I wanted to bring all that up, and I know it's super lengthy, but if you've read any of our BMW reviews, you understand that these bikes are optioned out to the hilt, is yes, it does have the ability to be equipped with a quick shifter, but you need to get it within that premium package, which means if you want the quick shifter, you have to spend 3K. Wow, okay. You can't buy it individually. Okay. And that's sort of the point at hand. Uh, is is that a big deal? Well, knowing BMW buyers as I as I know them, they will see this as a badge of honor and be almost driven to get this premium package. So, <laughs> you know, it's whatever. The people that are buying these bikes, they're already going into this thinking that that's the number they're going to spend. It's here nor there for them. Um, the quick shifter works quite well. Again, the gearbox we've already kind of established on the K1600 bikes that, you know, it's a, a, a wholly modern affair. Um, a lot of touring motorcycles, especially on the American side of touring, you get that chunky V-twin style of shifting. That is not the case in any regard when we're talking about any of these six-cylinder motorcycles in the market. It's very tight, very sporty, and the quick shifter is a nice touch. Um, it's kind of funny because, you know, as I mentioned before, the engine has so much power 
kind of don't need to shift for long periods of time. <laughs> so um, it's really handy in traffic. That's basically when I, I was like, oh, okay, now this, this is actually pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, yeah, so the, the quick shift works well. Gearbox is nice and tidy. No complaints there. Good, okay. Uh, the, I mean, obviously the big difference between, um, between the models is, for me, is the ergonomics. Certainly the, you know, the bagger version and this GT version um, have really quite different ergonomics to the GTL. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that, on how the bike actually rides? I mean, how does that affect the handling as well as just the comfort? So this is a bit off the cuff because, you know, I, I haven't been on a GTL or a B or a Grand America in quite some time. But knowing the GT as I know it, it is, you know, a totally neutral, upright riding position. We have that options out seat, but really in terms of comfort, that makes no difference. Um, you know, it's a very casual riding position and more than suitable for, you know, long days in the saddle. You're, you don't experience heavy knee bends. The foot controls are, you know, essentially mid control mounted. You have riser handlebars that come up to, let's say, I'm at five foot 10 inches. They come up to about midway on my chest. You're at this very sort of relaxed riding position. And everything is built with mileage in mind. And when I say that, I mean racking up miles. So if you're commuting to work on this, it's, it's great. You're going to get into the office and be, you know, totally, totally fine, ready to go for the workday. And if you decide that you want to ride to New York from Los Angeles, then you're probably going to be in good shape as well. Um, that's an exaggeration, obviously, but the fact is these motorcycles are designed to be ridden for long periods of time. And then we can start talking about some of the other things that are associated with that. You get massive amounts of wind protection. I mean, almost to the point where it, it might be a little much. Um, you know, often I'm on a lot of sport bikes and naked bikes, so sort of used to taking it to the chest. And when I have wind prote protection, I kind of feel like a dog that finally caught a car. Like, I, I don't know what to do with it. So, <laughs> right. you know, you have the uh, uh, electronically adjusted windscreen. It can raise, raise up to the point where I'd imagine someone that's eight feet tall would feel comfortable. Um, but, but no, I mean, I, I kept it typically in the lower setting, uh, mainly just to get an additional bit of airflow over me, get a little bit more going. Then you also have something that I've really loved about the K1600 family of motorcycles. It's a, not an entirely recent feature, but it has the little louvers in the front that you can uh, manually open and they just kind of extend out from the uh from the fairing and then redirect air in towards the cockpit and uh, right they kind of yeah. look like little praying mantis mandibles you know you sort of play with them in a parking lot i'm pretty sure bmw didn't want me to act like a 10 year old but um i do yeah those i was i was actually going to ask about that because the uh the goldwing has has the center vent that you can open um, in order to put, uh, you know, airflow onto the rider. I mean, obviously in hot weather, you know, a certain amount of airflow is welcome. In cold weather, not so much. But the fact that BMW have got, you know, an ability to, to change the airflow on the rider 
is is a very good thing i would say yeah and it is noticeable i i it's not a night and day difference and i feel like sometimes it's represented as such i would say if i had to put a number on it maybe a 15 percent difference in terms of what you feel uh you know in, in terms of air airflow um so it's there and especially beneficial when it's really hot and you know i did a couple days where we went out into you know some high desert areas and you know the temperatures were up in you know the the low triple digits which as long as you're moving you're okay but uh yeah you, i'll sort of take any help i can get and i i do love little features like that like the gold lane that that's definitely perceptible and i think it's in that same realm where it's it's not game changing but you'll you'll take what you can get you know what i mean absolutely yeah so how about the the rest of the bike is it is it all pretty much the same you know the uh the suspension is is always very good on these things the brakes are, are really good is there anything that's really changed well dynamic esa uh being available on all of the models um or being standard on all the models uh, is is a new thing as far as i know um but what they're promoting here is the next generation of their dynamic esa and it is standard on the gt um within that you have the two the two modes that bmw riders will be quite familiar with this at this point you have a road uh, damping mode and then also a dynamic damping mode um bmw's obsession with the word dynamic they find kind of hilarious at this point but they use it to describe many different things and um, right. really for our purposes dynamic esa does a lot of different stuff one at the base level it is semi-active suspension so it changes the damping characteristics as you're riding down the road it also compensates for preload automatically and taking in considerations like weight um luggage and things of that nature so it does adjust the geometry if you really want to get nerdy about it um, based on that on, on on those factors um for for our purposes and for the sake of conversation we're going to focus on the two the two modes and the differences between them you have road and dynamic as i've mentioned you don't have adjustability beyond that so it's not comparable to sportier models um you know, think Panigale, R1M, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and other naked bikes, whatever, where you can really get in there and start, you know, doing this and that to the compression and rebounds and yada, yada, yada. No, it, this is a touring bike. Keep it simple. Two modes. Road, it's a bit softer. I would actually say this is my preferred mode on this motorcycle, even when you're hustling through the canyons. It's not soft to the point where the bike gets wallowy or or is sort of incompliant. It's actually just a very good touring mode and well-rounded mode overall. So if you're commuting, dealing with, you know, urban potholes and the like, I think it's very well suited to that. Uh, dynamic essentially just sort of tightens things up a little bit. Okay. And, you know, running around on Angeles Crest, Highway 33, uh, some roads above uh, Santa Barbara, California, you know, when you're in that more sporty mood and you're in an environment where you can take advantage of it, I think it is applicable. Where dynamic I does sort of fall short is the sense that, uh, or in the sense that um, 
in urban environments, it can just become a little bit rough. And so swapping back to that road setting is definitely preferred or advisable, in my opinion. What do you put that down to? Is it that the suspension isn't reactive enough? Or? Oh, I'd say it's just a, a sake of the damping is in dynamic is just a bit more taut. Oh, I see. Okay. It, it's just not absorbing as much okay. as road would. And, and therefore, the rider feels more of that road surface. Okay. And over a prolonged period of time, it can be a little bit taxing. It's an observation that I had with the S1000R and S1000XR as well. Right. The dynamic modes, I feel on a lot of the BMW motorcycles can actually take it just that step too far when you're not actually riding aggressively. Okay. There's also another little quirk with that. The suspension modes are actually tied to your riding modes. So as we mentioned before, you have rain, road, and dynamic. If you flip between them, and it's really easy to do. You just have a mode button, boom, boom, boom. There you go. You can go through all three in like a matter of seconds. It will actually change your um, suspension mode. And so I like the dynamic riding mode, but I like the road suspension mode. And then each time I have to go into the menu and switch it. Right. That does bring us to our next point and something that BMW pointed out themselves is their UI or user interface for all of their TFT dashes as of late. It's quite, quite involved, we'll say. It's easy to navigate, but it is encyclopedic in nature. It's probably one of the most detailed menu systems I've used on any vehicle. <laughs> and, uh, I'm glad it's there, but it's a lot. And to sort of circumnavigate around those issues, there's actually these four programmable buttons on your left-hand side, just kind of right near your shin. You can program these. They're essentially hotkeys that you would use on a keyboard or you know, a phone or anything else. And you can program them to do different things, dive into different sections of the menu so you can access it much easier. So you could program it to... Uh, program one of the buttons to just go directly to the suspension setting menu so you can click over um, or you can do whatever else you want but that's sort of the, the nitty-gritty on the suspension all right so uh, very good so what are the amenities like on this yeah that you know the display is a new feature for 2022 with with respect to the k1600 bikes it features the 10.25 inch tft display and this thing is massive when i say 10.25 inch. Um, I mean, lengthwise, it's not <laughs> vertically stacked, you know, you're not looking at a small TV. Okay. But honestly, it's bigger than most TVs and uh, viewing screens that are on planes. It's huge, um, which kind of does play into BMW's uh, technology first initiatives that we've seen on a lot of their motorcycles throughout the year. I would say that BMW really leans into tech on a lot of their products. And that's just something that they their their fan base and that's what they do um sure. you know with that comes the proprietary app uh so you can connect your phone to the app and then use navigation things and things like that one of the really cool features that's associated with that is you can do sort of split screen modes and so right on the right hand side of this massive screen you'll be able to display either phone call information, music information, navigation, or a combination of that, and still maintain all of your uh, 
you know, uh, speedometer, tachometer, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's so much re real estate here, you can do a lot with it. Um, the only sort of complication with it is that you do have to pair your device, whether it's uh, Apple or Android product, whatever, to the phone or to the bike via the app. And then you also have to pair your headset to the motorcycle and, um, and your, your phone is used as the, the, uh, the service mechanism to communicate with GPS and, you know, actually use navigation services. So then you have to go through all of those steps, download maps to the app, make sure it's connected, et cetera, et cetera. You can see where I'm going with this. It's actually a fairly convoluted process to get your phone paired with the system. In a lot of cases, I would say it works. It, it works when it works, it works. And when it doesn't, it's a bit frustrating. Um, so <laughs> yeah, but for me, if you can't, really clear the hurdle of phone connected to Bluetooth helmet device and just have navigation that way. I'd rather just do that, but that's my personal opinion because I'm not, you know, a really finicky person in that regard. That's not a knock at the actual TFT display. That's just some of the functionality. Now, as you guys know, if you're using navigation, that's going to suck up a lot of battery power and BMW has thought of that. So right at the top of the, the fairing, there's a nice little cubby hole for your cellular device. It can be paired with uh, Android or Apple, as I mentioned. Um, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto are not featured on this motorcycle, mainly because those are touchscreen, um, touchscreen-based UI systems, and BMW doesn't really want to have touchscreens on their motorcycles. I can understand why. Taking your hands off the handlebar is not the best idea, in my opinion, but okay. But uh, the cubby hole is actually a really cool feature. So you lock your phone into its little carriage, put it in there, connect it, and your phone charges. So it keeps your phone on charge. Okay, so problem one solved right there. Now, as you guys know, if it's, you're using... Uh, GPS systems and things like that, playing music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to, you know, get your phone working. It's going to heat things up. There's a little fan in there. So once it gets to about, I think it's oh, like wow. 85 degrees or something like that, it actually kicks on. It's really funny because you can hear it if you're just sitting in a parking lot with a bike um, idling or, or just powered on, but not actually with the engine running. Wow. And you can hear the fan turn on. It's actually kind of funny. So that's really important because you can overheat cellular devices pretty easily. I've definitely done it on different motorcycle rides where the cubby hole for, for the cell phone is just parked like right in the fairing, right where it's baking in the sun <laughs> and then leaving the bike parked somewhere. And it's just, you know, roasting the thing. Yeah. Um, so that's very cool and quite important, honestly. Yeah, no, actually, that's a, that's a great idea. Well, overall, it sounds like you really liked the bike. You know, I think a lot of people have some misconceptions about these big touring bikes, and they're big. They take up a lot of room in the garage. The, the saddlebags on them are quite ample, we'll say. On that note, you actually can fit a full face, full face helmet in them and close and lock the lids nicely. 
the locking mechanisms and everything work really well on these bikes. That that's actually something that I really appreciate. That said, when it's when you're talking about handling and just sort of riding in the canyons, you can go at quite a good clip. And and again, you know, Goldwing riders can always attest to this. K1600 riders can attest to this. Uh, these motorcycles are not slouches when you're you're trying to just have have some fun, have a a sporty ride with your buddies or whatever. No, it's not going to be as aggressive as a true sport bike, but on the street, I would say the rider is going to be making up the difference. And it is pretty hilarious to catch up to full blown sport bikes in the canyons on something this big. And uh, no, you get the feedback from the chassis. Everything is communicated nicely and it just, it just works. I, I wouldn't say it's the most agile thing on the planet by any means, but you just tip in and it just flows into the corner and creates traction. And then as you're gassing out of it, you can lean on all of that torque that we mentioned before. That's just there. You don't have to wick up the motor into the upper, upper rev ranges. It just sort of works. It's actually really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I found that too. Yeah. And, and the, the GT over the GTL, the foot pegs are higher and slightly further back. I mean, they're still obviously very much a, a touring, you know, type of motorcycle, but but the end result is you get a lot more ground clearance than you do on the GTL. If I remember correctly, yes. And the riding positions between the bikes, they're similar, but they're meant to suit each purpose. I again, sure. I would say that the GT is probably the sportiest of the bunch. It's sure. more relative relative to say an RT. Um, so the classic sport touring motorcycle, and I, I would say it's more like that. Yeah. You know, the one interesting thing about riding the option 719 bike that we have, which is all white, is it's striking appearance to a motorcycle cop's bike. <laughs> so people kind of move out of your way when you're lane splitting and they do a double take and they're like, ah, oh, you got <laughs> I'm dead serious. You look in rear mirrors as you're lane splitting and people get that like panicked look on their face that we all have like, Oh, Oh no. It's oh, not a hostage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually really funny to see, you know, because the front ends of these motorcycles, uh, whether we're talking RT or, or K16 or GT, they're all fairly relative. Um, and it does have the, the adaptive headlights, uh, right. You know, updated for this year as well. Um, or, a, you know, that, that helps you going through corners when you're riding at night. There's also some pretty kind of quirky little functions that come with it. Uh, so there's like a welcome, uh, goodbye, and follow me home function with the lighting where wow. at different stages of those processes, um, they react slightly different. Right. Okay. We did mention pricing earlier, but that was pretty, pretty long time ago now. Um, <laughs> you know, MSRP is... $23,895. That is the base price. As we mentioned before, oh. our test unit has several options involved, mainly the $1,900 uh, option 719 mineral white metallic paint that comes with a few other little uh, aesthetic goodies. And we have the premium package here as well. That's an additional 3000 So grand total for our model specifically is $29,940. Again, that's quite a pretty penny 
but this is that that flagship you know upper echelon touring motorcycle it's geared towards people that well they're in a different income bracket than you and i <laughs> certainly for me <laughs> you know it's funny when when we were making the accounts with the app and getting the bike sorted and things like that it, the, the first option is doctor so i'm now doctor nick <laughs> But also feel like that that does represent BMW in a way where they had to put that in there because a lot of their buyers are doctors. <laughs> so <laughs> if you happen to be a doctor in North America, chances are 30 grand isn't like the biggest deal in the world for you. I, it's not nothing, no. but you're a doctor. But in the, in the market that this bike is aimed at, that is not a crazily expensive bike. I mean, you get a lot of machine for your money. And I think the purposes of this conversation is really, I've heard, I've heard friends of mine actually that own these bikes say, well, for a bit extra money, you know, I could get the GTL and I get the box on it and, uh, you know, so why not spring for it? Personally, I prefer the GT and I would forego the, the rear box on the back um, just because it, the, the comfort and the ergonomics. Yeah, I agree. I, I would also kind of highlight the differences between the RT models and this. You know, the RT models are the traditional sport touring motorcycle. They are a bit different from this. Again, different engine configuration, not as many cylinders for one. Right. <laughs> Slightly different riding position, a bit more petite motorcycle. Yeah. This is definitely that hard step towards the touring lifestyle without really forgetting all of that. And that's what appeals to me personally about the GT. You know, for people that really want to do the long distance stuff, there's the GTL and the Grand America. And those are your bikes. They have all the storage in the world. You could probably live out of them if you really needed to. And then you have the B, which is a step back from the GT. It's a little bit lower, different geometry, rides a little bit lower. You know, so those are all considerations. They are, yeah. I mean, this really is, you know, the sort of the hot rod of uh, of the range. I, mean, I liked it, but at the same time, it is comfortable enough that if you want to ride across country, you can. And in fact, our guest on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, the comedian Alonzo Bowden, did exactly that. He rode all the way across country on the GT model and absolutely loved it. For me, I actually really like the GT. I think it has a very definite place in the range. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you 100%. All right, good stuff. Hey, thanks a lot. Really appreciate your insights, as always. It's been, uh, it's been real. Yeah, no, no worries. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at yamahamotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours.
In this second segment, I chat with one of my all-time heroes, three-time world champion racer, Fast Freddie Spencer. I'll do my best not to come off as too much of a fanboy here, but frankly, it'll be tough. In my humble opinion, Spencer is a contender for the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Sure, his career was a little shorter than some, and his number of championships falls behind the likes of Lawson, Doohan, Rossi, and of course Marquez. But at the time, Freddie literally changed the way motorcycles were ridden. 30 years before Marc Marquez, Freddie was able to push the front wheel into a slide, corner after corner, lap after lap, in order to get the bike turned faster than anyone else. Freddie took completely different lines. He was able to get on the throttle so early, he could out-accelerate anyone off a corner. In the modern era, of course, Freddie is the chairman of the FIM MotoGP stewards panel. This is the panel of referees for all classes of Grand Prix racing. I talked to Freddie about his task there, and although for contractual reasons with Dorna and the FIM, he cannot talk about specific riders, teams, or events, nevertheless, his explanation of the job makes for interesting listening. <laughs> it's a tough job. Frankly, I wouldn't want to do it. At any rate, Freddie's new book, Feel, is available on Amazon. I'd highly recommend you read it. Actually, Ultimate Motorcycling is giving away five copies of the book, signed by Freddie himself, to the first five listeners of this podcast who contact us with the correct answer to the question, how many national AMA championships did Freddie win and which years were they? Please email your answers to producer at ultimatemotorcycling.com and we will contact the winners and send you a signed copy of Feel. Those five winners will be announced on a future episode. Unfortunately, for legal reasons, this offer is only open to US residents. That is, residents of America. Sorry about that. I heard, I've no idea if this is true, but on the AMA Superbike at Daytona, you used to bend the handlebars trying to wrestle that thing around. Is that true? Yeah, the left bar, I did. I did. Uh, it, or it just, yes, it would actually be bent a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and bent toward me, you know, on the left side for whatever reason. And, you know, and some of that could have been because I spent quite a bit of time sideways, you know getting onto the banking off the off the infield and and out out of the out of the chicane um and and probably some of it was getting the bike to hold the line and coming off the banking you know off of nascar four or nascar two right if you take all of those things and 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 the same thing going through the trial trying to keep the thing down because um you know they weren't that stable you know, no. so to keep, yeah, to keep the keep the power on, or again to get the bike to change direction, as probably pulling that bar in or holding it in. You know, yeah, that, that's what I, that's what I would have assumed. Probably changing changing direction, I would think. Well, and and the thing is, because that change in direction again, uh, as I said the other day, I don't, I don't, I've never, I don't counter steer, and so. Uh, if anything, I do the other way a little bit, and um, so you know that that could be some of it direction change. But at Daytona, there's not so much that as much at Daytona is is 
again off the off the infield and it's, it was bumpy in those years i off the chicane and on the banking um you know trying to keep the bike and then trying not only to keep the bike hold a line off the off the nascar four or onto the front straightaway or back straightaway but pulling it down you gotta realize you're coming down at, at a high speed in a pretty short amount of time you're trying to get the bike to come down at such a force to not utilize the banking but also to counter that roll-off effect yeah amazing. you know when you say you don't counter steer i know you're a big fan of body positioning you know are you using pressure on the foot pegs to turn the bike or but i i show that you know when i ride students uh i i show i take my hand off the left bar and like we're in the left corner you know left and then um using the front brake and and putting pressure against the gas tank with my outside leg specifically to, to keep the bike stable as much but also to pull it down and how i change able to change direction you know to get the bike to turn I, I don't again because the front the front end actually needs to turn that direction. You know, counter steering. I, I wouldn't say it's like if I'm going from one direction to the other in a quick chicane, like the bus stop, the old bus stop at Spa. There would be some some countering of the bike, but in just initially, just in maybe the slide of direction from of the weight from one side to the other, but not much again because i don't push that front end wheel the opposite direction because it's got to eventually rotate and that every bit of that rotation you're covering distance and time it takes before the bike will respond you know it's why i would show students that if they only counter steer the old you know not use their body or no brakes you know how long it takes the bike you know once they get down to a corner not only how much slower they'll have to go in the entrance, but how long it's going to take for the bike to turn. Remember, you know, it's like what you said when you saw, when you were behind me, you put the bike on its side. Right. But if you don't have anything to manipulate that, you know, which is obviously before you get the bike all the way to the side, where you get some of the rotation done, either by the, you know, in, in the most obviously extreme cases of riding, which would be, you know, sliding the rear wheel to get the bike to rotate and pivot around the front. Or if you don't use some of the inertia of the front wheel to allow it, you know, not only to, to slow it down by using the brake pressure, but get it to rotate either to the right for right in corner, rotate to the left as you're leaning the bike in, which will help the bike pivot, you know, and turn. Interesting. Is that is that what Mark Marquez does? Everybody does. We used to show this in the class, you know, back when we first got, you know, when I built the classroom and stuff and we got the ability to be able to show the MotoGP stuff, then they started showing on the screen the brake pressure, you know, and the, the throttle graph, you know, together. Right. You know, it would show they were braking and then as soon as they stopped braking, they were accelerating. You know, I mean, because you either controlling the bike and the direction and how quickly it turns and how quickly you get the bike to rotate with brake pressure and, and body movement, and lean angle, and obviously speed, you know, reducing the speed. Right. Then you're transitioning from that point. You're stopping the, the bike from turning because because also remember, again, because you're dealing with inertia is that the quicker you get the bike 
moving that direction, the more the inertia is going to take over. It's why that I would show as examples with Nick, you know, we'd come in and then I could just break and just turn right in front of him, right into the, where the bikes were by repeated, you know, I'd come in at speed and could just turn the bike into the, into the corner over the curb and into where the, everybody was sitting. Wow. You know, go in, break, 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 turn, 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 turn. And, and as the speed dies off, I pick the bike up and stop it, you know, because if not, you know, I, I, I would just fall over. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that's incredible. That's, that is the reason why, you know, somebody like me with my skills where, you know, I, I take the traditional line, I turn in towards the apex and accelerate out from the apex. I'm simply not getting the bike turned fast enough. So no matter how, how fast I rode, I simply would not be anywhere near competitive with you because I'm not, minimizing these corners and getting getting the corners um over as quickly as you are and uh, yeah that was very apparent to me when i followed you at your school yeah 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 very interesting where did you first learn that in my yard as a kid i, I still remember arthur so clearly that i would go out and once i started getting on bikes with a little bit of power you know like um like a 90 cc yamaha or my low hundred once i again once i started moving up the, the power chain I innately understood or, or would work on direction change. Right. Made sense to me about going in sliding and, and on dirt track, it's rotating, rotating, rotating the rear wheel as it comes around. And then timing as the bike's starting to go slower and slower, and slower, you have to take away lean angle or you'll just, well, it'll just stop. But if you... Right. Going slide, 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 and as it rotates, starts to rotate, you take away lean angle, lean angle, lean angle, and then you can start accelerating, which which stops the slide from going unless, you know, because we're going left, dirt track, it's, it's coming around. Then you stop it, and then you begin to accelerate. And then, you know, I would watch the older riders do similar things, and then, you know, again, slide it in, and then I know... You watch people that never develop, develop the feel for it. Let's say dirt track, where they slide and they slide, and they don't take away lean angle fast enough, and they just slide down. And they don't understand why, you know, that they just fall flat down or, or whatever. It's all about the transitions, you know. And so that's why I say that that one of the things that, and I know, you know, ultimately gave me the advantage when I was racing. They got me from my yard at 2620 Ministry to the World Championship and winning in Emla in September 1983 was understanding how to how to get the bike in and turn. But the key was is that transition from turning to accelerating and shorten it up in the shortest amount of time. And it's one of the things I told Irv in, in 82. We were getting ready for the 83 season and we were talking about things I had to work on. And I said, when I go back to Louisiana and I I had a 600 single Jerry Griffiths that built me a bike. And then I had a track that was like the Astrodome, had lights and everything. And uh, I'd ride out there and I'd do hundreds of laps. And um, and I, that's what I worked on, was was getting the bike in and turning, picked up and accelerating and shortening up that amount of time. And it was the key when I was battling with Kenny to be able to counter his acceleration advantage. Yeah. You know, because I, I couldn't outbreak him really and i could not accelerate him and so the only the only chance i had was to be able to equal his his braking um and this is in general right 
and then be able to initially accelerate quicker so I could then minimize his torque advantage. And then, then I'd be in a position where I could either race management, which is what helped me that day at, at Monza, um, where I kept pushing him into the parabolica because I was getting the drive off of Scari. And then he doesn't know. Then again, it becomes either it's a racecraft management and you and I kept pushing him and and he made a mistake and that's how I won the Italian Grand Prix there that day right what happened uh, at Anderstorp in 83 that was the second to last round and he he was very vocal about your riding then as an FIM steward would you have given yourself a long lap penalty <laughs> well the thing yeah it was a different time you know it's certainly a different time but we didn't touch or anything Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a little bit apples and oranges. Very good question, though, and I'm not trying to evade it. Imagine how many times I've been asked that same question. I Let me explain again what happened. And I talk about this in the book, uh, that what set that up. And it, it was basically, he had really sandbagged me in practice. And, and I thought I had an advantage, and I didn't. And so when we got in the race, he, he was he was right on it. And kudos to him. He did a great job on that. Uh, and he was uh, for sure about a second quicker than he'd run any time in practice or qualify. And so we get in the race and a track that I really thought we were going to have an advantage on, I didn't. So I, I was working out as the race went on. I'm working out, you know, where where I possibly can, can make a pass. And... Um, Thunderstorm at that time had this this banked right hander leaned on the back straight away and it was it kind of rolled off kind of way we were talking about at Daytona and so you know I'm used to that so that probably helped me those years racing Daytona even though Kenny raced there too <laughs> but it helped that up this past I kept showing him a wheel on the inside with four or five laps to go on the inside going into this this it was second gear right hander leaned on the back straight away and um I kept showing him a wheel. Well, going last lap, he tightened up the line thinking I was going to try to make a pass on the inside. And, and I was up high because it was a little bit of a bank corner. And on the exit, it worked out perfect for me because he had more lean angle. And when he had more lean angle, when he tried to accelerate, the rear end came around and he wheelied. The only time he, he lost acceleration in all the laps before was the last lap. He lost the rear end, wheelied because we didn't have trash control, wheelie control in those days. And so he had to roll off throttle a bit. I got my best drive. And when that happened, it was the first time and only time during the race that I got a better drive than him off the corner. And I was able to, it, that nullified his acceleration advantage through third, fourth gear. And so now I'm up next to him and we're going down the back straightaway next to each other. And there was a little bit of a, of a kink in the back straightaway and I was on the side of him. And then then we picked the bike up and it's a 90 degree corner, one corner from the end. And I'm up next to him. Now I have a five point advantage in the championship or one point advantage, excuse me. If I, if I can win the race, that'd give me a, a five point advantage. And I knew that as we go into the corner, I'm up the inside. He's next to me on the, on the left side. And normally you just, you just pick up a rider with your peripheral vision at the speed we're going you know just the wind the tracks bumpy you're so focused on looking ahead that you're not looking at the rider you just see him in your peripheral vision because you're next to him and normally that's it but for whatever reason 
at the last second, instead of just looking at him as one unit, his body and everything, I looked at his, his right hand. And when I did, it was time for us to get on the brakes. And as we got on the brakes, he set up, but he didn't get off throttle. It's the head fake, basketball head fake. And I played basketball in high school. So, but yeah, he did. That's exactly what happened. And he set up, and all this has happened, you, you can imagine everybody listening in thousands of a second, tenths of a second. But for me, in my mind, as I'm talking about it, it's all in slow motion. You know, it's one of the things that racing at our elite level or fighter pilots, that's our mind, you're able to see things under most intense pressure very clearly and slowly so anyway he sits up he stays on the throttle i do too now in just like i said thousands of a second then it's time you know we have to get on the brakes but at that moment we're both in there much deeper than we'd ever in any of the other laps and and i said that then i told him that we were right right in in the car afterwards and I said this many times with him and I things is, is I wouldn't go get on the brakes to eat, you know, <laughs> and now uh, up to a point, but I was going to definitely get on the, you know, get off throttle when he did. So we, we got on the brakes and we're both in there really deep and I'm, I have the inside line. And so as we go into the corner, we're both wide, a little bit wide. He gets on the throttle. He gets off to the edge of the track, and and I get a little bit of drive. Now we never touch, you know, uh, or anything. Right. And then that track, the next corner is only about a hundred yards down, and then it's then the start finish line is right up that corner. And I was had got a I was obviously in front of him. You can see the pictures, you know, obviously of the race. But and I won the race. Now he was upset. I understand that. And he was he was. But as I told him in the car. And I said this in the book, he was, a, he was more upset with himself because he really, that last corner is what allowed me to get up next to him. Um, right. and, and he knew that was a championship because that race was the key. If he could have taken that, the point lead or, or close enough to where going into Imola, which I knew this, I told her months before, it's going to come down at Silverstone. We're going to hang on. And I barely hung on and got second there. And then Sweden is the key because that's the race I should win. It suits our bike, everything. Then that would allow us going to Nimla. Um, if Kenny wins, I can get second. And that's going to be the championship. And it was. Wow. That's an awesome story. Just going back to your riding of the bike, you know, earlier talking about rotating the bike. You are one of the very few men that's ever won a 250cc and 500cc championship in the same year how how different was it to ride those bikes and especially the 250 i mean surely 250s are all about corner momentum and not doing this point and shoot type of riding that was the adjustment the riding styles are completely different and um you know it, it's it's certainly what made it such a huge challenge you're exactly right, Arthur. I, I stopped riding the 250, um, and after I won the championship in in um, in '79, and so in '80, I rode one race on the 250, which was the first was Daytona, uh, because I was there with her. It was the first year of the Honda program, Superbike program, and my first year with Honda. And everything was brand new with that. 
but I, Honda, American Honda was allowing me to ride the two strokes with her for the 200 and, and also for the 250 race. And we didn't really intend to race 250 race, but we got there and it was a kind of a last minute decision. Uh, and I didn't win the 250 race. I, but, uh, that was my last time I ever ride, ride a 250. So you fast, you know, go forward until September of 84, I rode the 250 that they built for me to race in, you know, the two classes at Suzuka. And, uh, it was amazing. Um, but it's, com it's completely different than the 500. Um, it's why winning the 500 and 250 class was very difficult. You know, Yarno Saarinen tried it, um, and was, you know, trying to do it in the early seventies, um, 73. And then Kenny in 78, uh, tried to do it his first year over, but after about five races, he stopped doing the 250 to focus on the 500, you know, back in the 50s, 60s specifically, uh, when there was a lot of multi-class racing, many times the only difference was displacement. You know, for example, the 350 and 500, same bike, same chassis, everything, same engine, just one's 350, one's 500. Same thing with 250, 350, like when Ballington won the two championships, one of the last in, in kind of the modern era in 78, 79, the 250 KR, 250, 350, similar thing, same chassis, everything, just different displacement. But the reason why it's difficult is because of that, because the riding styles are completely different. Well, I was able to uh, probably as much as anything, I, I've always had the ability, uh, again, because of my experience of, and my dad gave me the chance to ride so many different classes. And I've always liked riding different bikes, different characteristics. And I always worked on, even way before I did the, the world championship, two championships, I always worked on, on being able to make adjustments in a short amount of time, you know. I would ride like in 1977, the year that I won five world championships. I was riding a, a little 125 Honda and TC750. Right. It must have been so difficult to just pull in, you know, after practicing on a 250 or practicing on the 500 and then immediately jump onto a completely different bike. I don't know. It just boggles my mind how you can. I mean, it's one anybody can jump on the two bikes and just kind of tour around, but yeah. to ride at a world class level, sure, and let alone win the championship, is astonishing. Well, the thing is, absolutely. I mean, because you're racing again, and the riders that I respect so much, and it's why I spent so much time off the track thinking about it, and also in our development of the bikes. Um, again, I had an incredible team, HRC, basically for me, it was us, um, and developing bikes that would go on that would have so much success which for me is is very rewarding also you know the nsr 500 that i first developed and that first one the championship zone went on and the most successful bike in grand prix racing history uh the 250 went on to win multiple championships with luca catalar and max biagi and tony main right right do you have a bike that you enjoy riding the most no, I, I have, well, I, one of my favorite bikes is the RVF 750. Uh, it's the Suzuka eight hour bike. Um, actually rode one in, uh, 91, um, certain bikes for certain events, certain characteristics. And, and for me, 
you know, and it, it goes back to kind of answer a little bit of your question you said about adapting one back to the other. Because I do everything by feel, you know, I'm the most practical and, and analytical in development and and my approach and the way that I go about it, I do everything the same time, the way I get on the bike, the way that I exit the, the pits or, you know, when you came to my school and we did product launches and things. No matter the level, I go about it the same way every time because I understand the consequences or understand how to get myself in that the proper mindset because it's all about that. It's all about connecting everything that you see and being able to see, sense, and feel it. And, and so because that, I, I never use braking markers. I can tell you specifically, the only time I used braking markers was turn one at Daytona. Um, every every place else I would you know at, at Grand Prix tracks I just do it by my depth perception and being able to feel the amount of time it takes by doing it that way by in developing my skills to that level and again that started my yard as a young kid that's why being young is the key is understanding how to begin at such an early age to where you it's it becomes innate um but by doing that, it allowed me to be able to make, to go from one bike to the other. You know, my whole thing that I worked on with the 250 and 500, and I told the guys, I had, you know, when I was doing the championship, you probably know, of course, I had Jerry Burgess, Stuart Shenton, Irv Kanemoto was my crew chief. And when I sat down with them at first, in the December of 84, we were in uh, Surfer's Paradise, beginning a, a 10-day de- testing schedule with two bikes and everything. I said the key's going to be is 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 my ability to be able to make the transition, and then being able to, when we're testing and practicing things, is being able to to get on one bike to the other. Um, I'm not going to be able to do debriefs after the session, so I'm going to have to remember after both sessions, and we sit down. I said that's my part. That's going to be the key. I know you guys can make changes, and you know you guys can do this. But my job is is being able to make that transition from one to the other, because if you think about it, that's everything. Forget a bad start, which I did in Italy. Um, then being able to um, adjust to the bike, you know, in one lap so I can then get as I did. I came back and won the race, um, which is the first day that I won both races and Magello. If it's if it rains and I get shorted on practice and you know there there's so many variables that that happen as you're in the championship and your ability to be able to recognize it make adjustments in the shortest amount of time is the key you know um, so that's why I was able to I think well for sure that's why I was able to make that transition from one bike to the other to be able to make the adjustments i i can i could go through every single and we could talk all day about this but i could go through every single point in that 85 season where those those things that i felt were going to be the key were the key and my ability to be able to to make that adjustment then allowed the team to be able to help me to make the changes amazing amazing <clears throat> but yeah the other thing that was extraordinary was your ability to learn new tracks as well for instance, um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but the very first time you ever saw Suzuka, one of the most technical tracks in the world, you broke the lap record on your third or fourth lap. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I kind of, you know, I see, I see the lines, you know. Um, but I think as much as anything, too, is is my my 
experience from dirt tracking um, and being able to adjust the things in a, in, a, in a short amount of time. And it takes a tremendous amount of belief. The other thing is I don't complicate it. You know, I, I basically look at left-hand corners, right, you know, tracks, left-hand corners, it's right-hand corners. Um, I'm able to, you know, pick out, I pick out a point on the entrance, mid-corner and exit, you know. Um, you know, I break corners down into three sections. Um, and then, then it's just adjusting to the speed. The first thing I do, the first lap out, and, and I, I know that most riders don't do this, is the first lap out, I try to be on the line that I should be on. And then it allows me then the next step is, and this again is the, the practical side, analytical side of my thought process. Then the next step is, as I pick up speed, the, the lean angle obviously increases and the brake pressure increases. I see it the first time. Yeah, amazing. You think about it, if, if you do it kind of in that way, for me, you know, third or fourth lap, I already, I'm kind of on my line and got my breaking points and where probably most people just kind of go out and at first they're just looking around. Certainly the less experienced riders or whatever, I would say that I'm just not that patient. I don't want to waste time, you know? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Okay. How, how different would you, would you say the, um, or how similar, I suppose, is the racing today, Grand Prix racing, compared to your era? Well, it's so competitive. You know, one of one of the things that that obviously we run into, you know, it's it and and one of the one of the things that puts so much pressure on everybody is the competitiveness and the closeness of the racing. It, it's hard for the riders. The riders are under a tremendous amount of pressure because. They they have either less time or or if they make a mistake the the it's more costly, you know. So it, it in that respect the competitiveness is not it's not that in my time it was less competitive. There were just less people that were that competitive. Um, so the closeness now the closeness of the racing is probably more similar like it was in our dirt tracking days where you know you I mean you'd have all twelve riders on the front straightaway together after 20 laps or 25 laps, you know, and you slide off the groove and four riders go by you, you know? So that's what I grew up in. What was a level of competitiveness that would be more like it is at the Grand Prix level today, you know, that that's, that's really the difference is, is just the, the closeness. If we're comparing Grand Prix racing my time to now. But otherwise, I mean, it's it's sort of typically probably about the same. I mean, I'm just kind of a, sort of alluding a little bit to your role as a as a steward. This is you can see exactly what's happening with the bikes and understand exactly what's going on. Yes. Yeah. The bikes, the bikes in, in the respective way they work and things is not that much. Terrible. You know, I, I've ridden, I ride and I've ridden many times, you know, modern MotoGP bikes and modern sport bikes and things i just got back from germany riding um my grand prix bikes you know from my era and uh there was there was Stefan Stefan brattle was there and so he was riding one of the 500s and and um and kevin was there he was riding one of his rgvs and and so you know characteristics of a bike is characteristics but what we what we have 
to deal with today, the modern motor GP rider and, and our job is from the standpoint of the track limits. You know, there's, there's a lot more that is being analyzed. There's a lot more expectation from the safety level. You know, when I started the, the stewards panel four years ago, there was only one other steward uh, that was a permanent steward, uh, Bill Combo, and it was just Bill and I, and we had four cameras and the track limits was done by a company called BGN. And it was very inconsistent. Uh, we, and they were just one person with that. Um, and that changed all the time. So even the operators were, were different, um, you know, on a, uh, on a weekly basis. And one of the goals from the get-go is to build up steward panel through having better tools. Like today, I have 48 cameras. Um, we have six people in the... The track limits done by by pressure sensors, along with video for accuracy. Again, because of the safety aspect, which is from an internal uh, race direction, the MotoGP safety commission, the riders themselves, and and Dorn in general, and overall is, is the safety aspect uh, because of the speeds that the riders are going. And so the track limits, the simplicity of back in the old days is not there anymore because there's a lot more parameters today. There's a lot more things that they work on, not only the safety aspect, but also from a track standpoint is how much more can you move the barriers away uh, from a cost standpoint and also a race of a spectator standpoint. So there's a lot of things that are taken into consideration on each of these things that, that are that are implemented, again, for the safety aspect, so it doesn't affect not only the racing, but also the show itself. I fully see that. Personally, I, I do agree with the track limits. I, I think it's, it is much safer to have a strip of green paint than it is to have a strip of grass or, or worse. Yeah. And guys at your level are so good at staying online hey, you know, you know where you know where the rule is and where it begins and, and finishes and stick to it. Well, and the other thing, too, is, is that we don't we're not at tracks that are just motorcycle tracks. I mean, we have to work within the, the Formula One and FIA rules. And, and, you know, they want they would prefer to have, you know, asphalt everywhere like at Paul Ricard. It's one reason why we wouldn't, wouldn't go back and race at this point at a track like Paul Ricard. It's all asphalt. Oh, you know, from again, from a safety standpoint, there needs to be for some, you know, there's gravel and there's sand, you know, we have, we have at our tracks. And again, that's a whole different area that the safety panel or the, the stewards panel has nothing to do with. That's Franco and Jeannie and the FIM and the, uh, the Grand Prix Commission. But there's a lot that goes into that from, you know, because again, we have to work within, you know, the, we share tracks on that level with formula one and with other major you know motorsports and so same thing with the yellow panels which is something that's come about in the last few years the stewards uh, panels is involved with that we monitor that i do that myself uh, along with my crew again with the uh, track limits to ensure that every lap is that is that is canceled for riders correct you know, again, with thinking about from the writer's perspective as a writer and also the fact of, of how difficult it is that we don't send a cancel lap up to timing and scoring that um, is not correct. And But we've done over almost 
4,500 cancel laps, you know, and that's under yellow flags and, um, and with, with track limits in practice, but majority yellow flags, just yellow flags alone. Um, again, um, you, you know, someone might say, well, what's the big deal? Well, you, you have a yellow flag or a crash, rider goes down, you have four track marshals and that are not in protective gear that, that are coming out there trying to get the rider removed out of the sand, trying to clean up the situation. That has to be the first priority is to make sure they're okay. Yeah. And so we've developed just again in the last couple of years, a race control suite where we able to have a direct connection interface with the panels since they've come on board so that we know exactly where the sectors are. We can get to it quicker. We can then make sure that the riders that are in that sector are properly been able to pick them out and then to make sure they had time to not only see the yellow flag or yellow panel for that sector, but in the previous point, that was another thing I really pushed for. And we make sure that so the riders have enough time to be able to not only see it, then be able to react to it and be able then they should be able to make the proper decrease in speed and avoid excess danger or whatever. If they do crash, then that's a penalty. And, and it should be. And most everybody, they understand it. They don't like it, of course, sometimes, or they may not think they see it. But that's why we also why that want to make sure we have enough cameras to be able to then say come up, which they should be able to come up and say, okay, hey, you know, we have your own board and there's the panel. So the riders can be involved in the process then if necessary. If they feel that something's unjust or they're about to get a penalty, you talk to them. Of course, of course. You know, most people, you know, they have no idea. For example, not only have the three major classes, but I have a support class. And most of the time now, even two. So practice will start at eight o'clock in the morning and go to 6 p.m. And the most break that we get in the sewer panels is 10 minutes. Wow. And in that time, every single lap matters. And so when the information comes, for example, when they notify we have a crash, we notify the track limits or the yellow flag group, and they they send it through the, the race control suite. It comes to WAP and I, he's my, my right-hand guy, and my other two steward members um, that are both from the FIM. And so we're sitting there, and so we, and I make sure that the riders were in the right spot, and then if they weren't, or they had enough time, and then we they they input it and it goes up to the up to timing and scoring and that could be happening two or three crashes in the same lap and that could be in every single session and so there's no tying down and then at the same time you're monitoring whether there's interference or whether there's whatever and all of that gets evaluated and then you you make a decision or you you go different than F F1, the, the stewards, they have one class, they have one race, and they might, they might have a track limit or one incident. We, we may have a thousand track limits and yellow flag um, issues along with the other issues like in Moto3 Moto where interference or, right. or blockage or causing a crash or whatever. We may have 300. 
So when you take a decision, how, how do you decide on the penalty? I mean, is it the three of you kind of look at each other and go, oh, I think probably long lap on this one. And no, 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 I think one race suspension. I mean, how do, how do you come to that? You know, basically you have president and, and the teams know this, you know, where we have uh, long lap penalties or you may have, you know, for example, Moto3, um, where we have four or five riders and it's in the last 15 minutes of qualifying and it's a safety concern and they come out of the pits and then they just move in front of riders and it affects so much. Um, those, those become kind of standard levels of penalties and, and those develop over the, over the years. For example, um, before there would have been in Moto3, something like that when Bill and I were doing and starting this out, it might've been grid position, which absolutely had zero effect, <laughs> you know, none. We've had most free riders start from pin lane and win the race. Yeah. So, you know, basically then you talk to them and, and I've had briefings and we've talked about this and things, and then you move it to where it is now. Um, and which has had an effect and it's made a difference. Um, it's not like something you, oh, you know, want to do, uh, but it's back of the grid and one long, you know, and maybe a long lap. Yeah. And then it, it starts making a difference. And, and because it's a collective group in that case, you know, we have with Moto3, we've had so many problems with them waiting in pit lane and going out and, and there's so much retaliatory. So they end up and, you know, um, and things happen and that's what we're trying to do. And, and again, to also being able to have better tools to be able to see things and as it's happening, but it's, it's, it's absolutely the toughest job you could ever imagine. Yeah, no, I, I, I can imagine. I can imagine. So, I mean, obviously, the I think the big criticism, or, you know, from from the public is probably, you know, consistency. And I would imagine you guys, obviously, that's one thing you guys are constantly striving for. This is the thing. It's always perception. You know, that's the sad part is that a lot of that is based on the emotion of, of like the difference of, oh, yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is, is that as a steward, you, you can't base decisions on what is popular or what people, you know, people's perceptions. Yeah, I'm very glad you said that because I, I mean, I, to I totally agree with you. I mean, you have to take emotion out of it and look at it. And and obviously your history of, of analysis and of your own writing and of other people's writing and, and I think makes you perfectly positioned for this job. But my my big question, I think, you know, is how do you how do we minimize the penalties so that we don't ruin the racing? Certainly. That's what has come up so much. You would not believe how much pressure there's been about the from the riders. I mean, at the very top level, is that if, if someone gets touched, they should that's it. I mean, like kick them out of the race. <laughs> and race direction, we say no way that, that we can do that. You know, we we have to. It's the hardest thing that that we do, and we certainly sometimes and it and you make adjustments. You know, it's like it's like when we started the last lap thing from a few years ago. That actually started at the end of nineteen, where we started putting more emphasis on if you go in the green, so you don't get an advantage on the last lap, a higher expectation. Right. Uh, 
to do that. So, uh, and sometimes it happens where on the safety thing, there's been so much of a push and I, I've been accused of not being harsh enough, you know, not doing anything, giving people warnings and things. And, but I've always been about race, the race incidents. Why I call so many incidents, race incidents. And I get a lot of criticism for it. Yeah, no, I, you I, know? I can see it. It's a, it's a very difficult call to make. Yeah. Again, we do have to look at what it is to affect the writers. The writers can do what they do and they don't have to run into each other. Kind of goes back to what I was saying about with, with Kenny. I had to figure out a way to to shorten up the amount of time to bike change direction to be able to then affect, uh, allow me to be able to minimize his acceleration. There's not anything the writers experience that I don't understand. And, and this is not me. I just basically implement what the rules and implement um, basically the general consensus of race direction and obviously the safety rider safety commission which they meet every friday at grand prix is motor gp riders and everyone and and they're always you know we're, we're trying to strike that balance absolutely between making sure the riders uh have the best chance to be able to show what they can do um and then be able to do it safely because it is it is very competitive. The other thing is an expectation of professionalism. You know, one of the things that we we run into and uh, is with the Moto Moto three riders. They look up to the Moto GP riders. Moto GP riders go off the track. Uh, they they get in each other's way. Then that affects. And I've talked to the riders about it. And then they they understand that that you guys you know you Moto GP guy you know have to set the example for the younger riders. And, and so there's a lot of, lot of situations like that, that, that we deal with. Um, you only hear about the decisions, you know, but there's so much more to it than just, um, you know, we don't sit around and wait for someone to get in someone's way, you know, or, or cause an incident. There's other things that, that we are always working toward and working on. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, one thing that has really changed a lot in the last couple of years, and obviously this is nothing to do with with your commission, but um, we're seeing all these ride height devices and these winglets on the on the bikes. Do you what do you what are your thoughts about that? Because that is a big change from your era. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things that that all of those devices do is assist the rider and make the rider's job easier which is not a bad thing but in doing that are you affecting in any way the safety aspects or are you affecting the the performance the racing and those things in my opinion those devices have a very good impact to a point but now we're starting to see with the winglets and things, disturbance and speed, the riders get all there together. There's a lot of turbulence and disturbance, right? you know, that, that affect how things turn out. It sounds to me like you're not a fan of the winglets and, and ride height devices. Well, I just think that they, they, they have their place to a point. And I think that if they start causing, you know, affecting the racer and the stability bike, the closeness of the racing, then they'll have to be reviewed. Yeah. Again, from what I read on the forums and various things, that it seems that there's a gradual, or not so gradual really, but just a movement of people are starting to feel that overtaking has been compromised by these various devices and that 
the general feeling is is look can we please ditch all these all these devices so that we can go back to the old days um, where the racing where, where there was more overtaking otherwise we're heading in the f1 direction where the air becomes so dirty behind a bunch of bikes that nobody's capable of doing anything well one thing i think you have to look at in that respect is the then you have to start looking at the bike themselves you know it's like and this is just me just just talking in general this is not as, as a steward or anything but if you look at let's say moto three's case you know some of the issues that are happening on the track the closeness of the racing or, or the issues that we run into with slow riding try and always get the draft the riders being so focused on that that it affects their ability to do setup i've had multiple conversations over these years again part of the thing no one would really know about ways that we can help the riders and help the teams to be able to to stop some of these other issues um they have to overgear these bikes because in limited transmissions they have access to moto three bikes and so again the riders get in their head that they the only way they can run a quick time is they have to be able to use the draft which they actually end up complete opposite of that because of what they do at the end of the sessions but that's what they think well they need more torque but that how would that affect the racing you know so there's always that aspect of it and again the manufacturers they they have to you know figure that out and then from from the practical side of the cost side and for the teams and everything be able to do it but there's certain things that they could do to the bikes not only help that would probably help the riders as far as development wise too, because of, of giving the riders more torque, which would help them with throttle control and things. Again, that's the racer teacher side of me that, that understands that. And, and I, I took a big interest in it and I've had a lot of, a lot of talks with, with people about it. Uh, but that would make a difference with that. And then it would solve some of the issues that we run into. If you move forward to MotoGP, getting what you're talking about, about the devices, is the only way that you can move away from that is to have to change the characteristics, the speed of the bikes. You know, the speed of the bikes is such as some Valentino said, and many riders have said about they accelerate so fast and the speeds are so fast um, that basically you're just trying to control your bike. And that's what they're trying to do with the with the devices. Then you look at how that affects the, the race in itself. So um, they'll look at the whole format of, of what what bikes they use, you know. There's there's interesting things that I think, you know, from a motorcycle again, from again, not from a steward I'm talking, but from a motorcycle standpoint. Why this job? If it's in the context of you believe things happen for a reason, then what's the reason? Why why are you in this job? Well, uh, I'm in this job because I gotta ask, you know, but I got a phone call and 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 asked to do it and motorcycling has been my entire life and like i said when i started the steward's pedal job it was four cameras one permanent person now i got six there's six people we have 48 cameras we're growing that we have a race control suite all these things that not only going to help the steward's panel ultimately do a better job at analyzing not just incidents that's kind of a small part the other aspects the safety aspect the preventative aspect the the part about the you know, we do yellow flags, we do all kinds of things. And and being able to work toward making the sewers panel a better program into the future. We always will be working on that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And making sure that 
that we're on the same page and you're going to have periods of time. And again, because it's a high level, it's, it's the best people doing what they do best. And, um, and uh, no one respects that more than me. And no one wants to make sure that whatever we do to contribute is, is the best it can be. Sure. Do you, do you think that the writers appreciate what you're doing? Um, many, you know, but certainly, <laughs> you know, it, but the thing is, is most writers understand how difficult the job is. Certainly it's always, I knew this going in, it was going to be difficult. And it's not a job that I would wish on anyone. Yeah. Most people, and most people I know, you know, it's like, it's like even Kenny, when I say he goes, but I wouldn't do that job for anything. <laughs> um, you know, no, no one will that I know, you know, they really, you really wouldn't because they're always going to have someone that's unhappy, but you can only do it the best, you know, make the best call that you can. But getting back to the purpose thing is that this isn't the final thing that I want to do. And one of the things that this job has been great at is taking what I, not only what I understand, um, and, but also the people and, and, and the other aspects of it, the, the bringing along and developing software, developing, you know, basically protocols that can filter down and help all the way down the line in, in, in motorcycling. Um, you know, we're developing software, software at that level that Dorn is spending money to develop. It will help. Um, you know, track day programs and, and club racing and, and, and different things down the line um, that so that it can keep functioning. Um, so to be a part of that is, is, is certainly a, a, uh, a privilege. To, to do the job is a privilege, even though as difficult as, as it is. Um, and, you know, as long as I'm doing it, I'll just do the best job I can. Yeah, I, I'll bet. Going back to um, your, you know, well, earlier parts of the conversation, but, but the, the one thing that constantly comes up with you is, is this word feel. You're always talking about, you know, the feel, the feel for the bike, the feel for the front end, the, the, the feel. And of course, you've written this book with that, with that as the title. So, you know, how, how did all that come about in your head? What exactly is that? What do you mean by all of this? Well, you know, right, riding a motorcycle for me, even when I was when I was little, uh, was a very personal and intimate experience. Um, and and what I mean is it it was always a way for me to grow, evolve. As I rode in my yard and as I developed those skills of being able to trust and being able to so, and i talk about this in my book you know things that happened when i was a kid um riding was my my outlet and it was a thing that would would help me in so many ways you know my hand because i burnt my hand you know i was in leaf fire when i was two and and it hurt and i i, I couldn't let any sun get on it. it it ached all the time when i was a kid but when i rode that all that went away and it was a way that i because they told my parents I would lose my hand um, by the time I was four or five years old because of circulation. It was really bad, my left hand. Wow, I never knew that. Wow. But, and I talk about that in the book. And But riding is what was my physical therapy, you know, because in those days, mid-60s, you know, they didn't, um, there was really not the understanding about 
physical therapy and things that we understand today. And so anyway, that, that saved me and saved my hand. And, and so I, I always had this real connection or, or this, this innate intuitive be- belief that motorcycling was my way to help me understand things. And, and it's the truth. And, and so as I, as I went through life and, and my world championships and then um, doing the school, and I talked about this book, it was, they were all growing periods. Um, and the struggles were the, the most, you know, but understanding that is, is what basically I get to in the book. And, and there's a period of time in 19 that I talked about beginning August 2nd, I have a backpack and a few hundred dollars, uh, which I wouldn't trade for anything. But they were my truly moments of, of, you know, just understanding. And uh, that's what the book is about. The book is about understanding the way that I think about things um, and the way that I grew to think about things um, and how motorcycling helped me with that and why I remember so well my focus and all these different different um, parts of, of what I think not only helped me be successful, but more importantly, helped me understand why things happen and in, in one's life. And so how, how motorcycle racing and and everything, everything that took you to the world level has really affected your affected life. Yes, and and so it's like doing this doing this job. You know, one of the things that you know is is you become stronger. It helps you understand things better. You know, um, again, I, I've had such a wide variety of experiences. You know, from being in Miss Tronda's home, and, but it all started when I saw that photo when he was when I was six years old. J.W. Gorman's Power Cycle Honda. And it was the one photo that was on my eye level. And it was a Japanese man and, and Mr. Mr. Gorman. Um, and it was Mr. Honda. And then, then, you know, 11 years later, you know, I'm, I'm in his home. And he puts his hands on my shoulders and said, thank you for winning the world championship. And, and so I, I've had those, all those incredible moments. But for me, it was always wanting to understand what they meant, you know, and um, and so I've always always worked toward understanding that, and and so I here I am in the book, and I talk about with Teresa or Miss Ada or Mr. Williams, and most people would view it as, you know, well that's too bad, you know, you you have this, you're in this situation. Um, well, I view it just the opposite of that. You know, to me, I, there, there's two types of success. You know, there's obviously material, but more importantly, there's the understanding aspect. There's the, the, the experience, the awareness, which I believe is the most important thing that we develop in our life, um, is this awareness and, and understanding because there's not a person out there that's listening to this. I don't think they would they would disagree with this if they really thought about it. Is that when we understand and that awareness grows and we understand exactly the purpose of something, there's something incredible that happens inside each of us in that moment. And it's an it's a it's a contentment, you know? It, you you understand a situation, or more importantly, you have a moment with someone else. And I'm not talking about so much tragic or anything, but but as far as 
is as I as I wrote to you the other day, you know, where it's a significant situation, you know, that happens. Um, and and being able to then look and, and understand why it happened, you know. Um it's it's an amazing thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, for anybody listening to this, um, Freddie's book, uh, Feel, is available on um, Amazon. But actually, we're going to be giving away five signed copies of Feel, and we'll post a question in the show notes. And the first five people to answer the question correctly will get a free copy of free signed copy of Feel. Freddie, uh, thank you so much for coming coming onto the podcast. I've got one final question for you, um, just before we sign off. We, uh, we could talk about this all day long. Who, who is, you know, who is the goat? Who is the greatest of all time? And for me, and, and, and you know, and I, I don't want to say this because you're on the podcast, but for me, having watched you throughout your career and really seen how extraordinary it was and how you changed the way people rode motorcycles, for me, you are definitely, if not, you are certainly one of the contenders for greatest of all time. But do you have somebody's riding who you really a standout who you truly admire i mean obviously there's me i'm sure uh, <laughs> but i we're talking about you know maybe valentino schwantz rainey lawson maybe kenny roberts who, who is there a standout for you a, a really standout rider you know our, our the thing is i don't i don't like to comment on that i i don't certainly don't comment on on myself i appreciate you know what what you say but to me i i respect so many writers over so many different generations you know and and having having battled with kenny uh like i did it was an amazing amazing time and and so i i just i see greatness in different different writers you know yeah okay all right i i, I get that i mean even outside of the work the the moto gp championship you know, watching somebody like, you know, Razgatlioglu in, in World Superbike and his ability on the brakes. I mean, there's just extraordinary levels of talent out there. And they're, frankly, they're all flipping heroes of mine, all of them. Yes, absolutely. Anybody who throws a leg over and, and what we do and what, what racers do uh, in general, motor, uh, Grand Prix racers and, and motorcycle racers in general, uh, you know, it's one reason why I think that there's, there is a lot of respect um from other sports because of the difficulty um and there's certainly um it's why i respect what the writers do um and what it takes to compete from a physical standpoint mental standpoint and emotional standpoint um and getting all those all those elements to work together and to trust you know it goes back to what i said about what motorcycle gave me is that it gave me a lot of so much trust in my ability to be able to 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 make decisions in the moment riding um and which is the key to everything and, and whether it's in riding a motorcycle or or in life it's one reason why i love doing my school um it gave me those 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 abilities to be able to not only see it myself but to but to see it in others and to help others uh which to me is is the ultimate Thing that you that we all should do is is what we do for others yeah i get it i totally get it well freddie hey thank you so much i really appreciate your time and your insight as always you're the thinking man's rider and world champion so thank you so much i, I really appreciate your time you're welcome.